Lamar Giles is a two-time Edgar Award finalist and a founding member of We Need Diverse Books. Between reading Stephen King's On Writing and discovering books by black authors in his favorite genres of science fiction and fantasy, Lamar realized there was a route to making money writing fiction. At first, his stories tried to emulate the voices of his favorite authors growing up. He even sold a few short stories that way. Yet it was when he found his unique voice that his career truly started to shift. There's much more to Lamar's story, of course, so be sure to listen to today's episode of the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcatcher of choice. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for a link to the Patreon offerings. I've got some good ones for you. Thanks so much for being a listener and supporter of the show. Enjoy today's interview. This year, all the Zoom meetings we've done, I think everyone knows that sometimes the tech can get spotty. It's not. A yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had it on the... Uh pro level for a couple months because i did a couple interviews with multiple authors at once and and i don't know man I, I feel like maybe there's some throttling going on on the free tier as far as quality i can't imagine yeah. i can't imagine I, I can't i can't imagine what it's going to be like next thursday when they drop the time limit so everybody can do like the thanksgiving family thing uh -huh. i hope it works out well but i'm a little skeptical Oh, I didn't know they were doing that. Uh, yeah, yeah, they announced it. They said, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna drop time limits on Thanksgiving Day. Oh, that's so awesome. people can um you know do digital stuff with the family. Good, good. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a nice thing. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. Well, hey, Lamar Giles, welcome to the Fearless Storyteller. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And for people who may not know who you are, what would you like to share? What do we need to know about you? Um, I am a writer. I write mostly young adult novels. I've written some middle grade novels. Before I did that, I wrote a, several pieces of short fiction. Um, I grew up in a factory town called Hopewell, Virginia. Never really saw writers growing up, so I didn't know it could be a job. And I've just been fortunate enough to at first stumble into it and then purposely make it my career. Mm. And it's been going pretty well over the last few years. Yeah. Um, so how did you stumble in? You mentioned you stumbled into writing and I love the name Hope Well, Virginia, by the <laughs> way, by the way I, I love, I love town names in general. There's always a, you know, I, I've, yeah. I've done enough PR now. I feel like PR is an ancient art. <laughs> I, we, we do have a, a, a very nice name and I, I was born and raised there. So I got a lot of love for Hope Well. And, and what I mean by stumbling into it is, if you grew up in Hopewell, 
it's a nice town. Don't get me wrong. I go back there often. I still talk to kids in my high school when we were still allowed to have school. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a place that necessarily cultivates artists. Um, mm. As I mentioned, it's a factory town. Um, we had when I was growing up, we made tires, we made chemicals, um, we did plastics, and my mom worked in one of those factories for 32 years. And so, as a kid, I saw factory workers, and we're also located next to an army base, Fort Lee. So I would see soldiers. Mm. Never, never really understood that writing or any sort of artistic endeavor could be a career. And so, growing up, loving to read and loving to make up stories for reasons I didn't really understand. I never had in my mind that I was going to graduate from Hopewell High School, go to college, and somehow end up making my living writing books. And the thing that sort of changed that, it was sort of this confluence of events around the year 2000. It was me stumbling across books by other Black people that were more like the sort of things I like to read and write. Because up to then, I was really big into like fantasy, horror, science fiction, and didn't understand how to find the Black people that did that. So in my mind, that was a thing only white writers could do. And at the same time, Stephen King's On Writing had published. I think that was around the year 2000. Mm. Memory's a little fuzzy now. But reading his story of being a teenager and figuring out how to send off stories and sell them was the first time I understood there was a route to making money. And I had stories. And so after reading that book, I actually wrote a story, sent it off to a webzine that doesn't exist anymore. And I ended up selling my first story. First one I ever submitted, I should say. Yeah. And so how, much did, how much did you make on the sale? Five whole dollars. Hey, I congratulations. Would, I, you could I, be a music I, industry I, professional at five dollars a year. I bought three tacos from the student union. Um, that's how I spent <laughs> my first advance. Celebrating uh, success. That's good. <laughs> And and here's the good news about it. like that that I needed that boost because I'm like okay cool I did it once I, it happened I sold it and yeah. in my mind I'm like I made it I'm about to be that guy and mm. then what happened after that was three straight years of every submission being rejected so I needed that initial boost but also the following experiences of being humble to yeah. set more realistic expectations yeah so. <laughs> So did you like research how to query when you, when you were doing, when you made that first submission or is it something you just kind of experimented with and figured out on your own? I had no clue what querying was. I wasn't researching any of it. It's just that in, in that particular, in, in Stephen King's memoir, he breaks the process down in a way that's pretty much still a valid process. I just don't know what the short story markets are like anymore, mm. but, um, you know, like his idea of you write the letter, you kind of describe what the story's about. Um, you try to make sure whoever you send it to, that's the sort of thing they publish. Like, I didn't know any of that. So all that was in the book. And then after that first sale, I started to look more into it and like, how do people do it now? Because obviously Stephen King wouldn't have to go through the same sort of steps of convincing an editor to purchase something, right? Yeah. And that's what, that's when I got into researching how the query process goes. And even looking into the modern techniques at the time, this is the early 2000s, mm-hmm. I still messed it up a lot. I mean, and by that, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily polish the story the way it needed to be. I, I, I wouldn't always like try to nail down the precise editor that would definitely like the type of story I was writing. So yeah. I was still 
doing the the rookie mistakes. But it was in a time period when I shouldn't make those mistakes. Um, I learned from all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, I imagine it's a difficult process because you don't get a lot of feedback whether you're doing it right or not. <laughs> That's the truth. I remember, I'll never forget one letter I got back, one rejection. It was the first time I ever got a note back. And all it said was, learn how to use commas. <laughs> I, oh. and, and to that to whoever to whoever that editor is i still probably don't know how to use them correctly and, yeah. and I, that's a message that's a message for all you writers out there you know is that that stuff it, i felt like he was being a little bit snarky can i curse on this yes you can be yourself i, I felt like that note was a little bit shitty it was yeah. like it, it had the feel of snark and like i said to that editor if you if you ever hear this i probably still know how to use them i'm doing fine <laughs> it, it sounds like that was an Oxford comma, you know. If you yeah, know what exactly, I mean. exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a funny thing. Like a lot of people get hung up on like the do's and don'ts of grammar and all these things, and spend a lot of time, you know, a crit- criticism time in that area. And you know, I get the sense that at this point in your journey, you might have different feelings about what the important part of a story is. I do. I tend to think it's all about, you know, finding your voice and making it unique. I actually, these days, I'm part of the faculty of Spalding University's um, MFA program in creative writing. So um, occasionally I'll take on students that I mentor. Mm-hmm. And the thing I always try to focus on with them is just making sure they're finding their voice. And they're not just trying to duplicate the voice of whoever they grew up reading or whoever yeah. is hot right now, which is which are things I did when I was starting out. Uh, I very much wanted to be Stephen King. So a lot of those early stories would be Stephen King ripoffs, if yeah. I'm being honest. And so my thing is, I'm not going to sit there and obsess about how you use punctuation or grammar, because I'm like, if it, is, it, is it your voice? That's the thing I want to bring out, and that's the thing I want to encourage. And the truth is, if the story's there and the voice is there, that technical stuff's going to get cleaned up when the publisher buys it and the editor approves it and you go through copy edits. Yeah. Yeah, and, and some of it is stylistic, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So you got into writing books. There were other storytelling avenues. Was it books because books were the thing you loved above all else or was it just the first avenue that made sense for you it's the one that made sense because the truth is i still want to do other sorts of writing like um i'll likely be doing graphic novels soon wouldn't mind writing some scripts but it's just mm-hmm. being in virginia and being the sort of of reader i was i grew up reading short stories and books and so I gravitated to that more. Like, I didn't know what a script looked like, for instance, for TV or film until I was in college. I didn't know what a play would look like until I was in college. And by then, I was already pretty much in my mode of, I, I like to write short stories. I like to write novels. But I say that I like to be around long enough to try it all. Yeah. That's, yeah. Me too. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think your voice is? Are you like intentional about it or is it just you or more? Is it a, like a mindset process of getting centered or something? I think it's intentional because I try to be sparse. I'm very much a writer who wants to get out of the way. 
So like I tend to not lean into a lot of metaphor or flowery prose. Mm. Um, it's, um, I can't remember the writer's name off the top of my head, but it's a thing I've talked about with students before. And it's an essay I read about this thing called the fictional dream. And it's mm. the idea that if you pick the exact right words, if you're very precise about your nouns and your verbs and your sentence structure, there'll come a point when the reader falls into almost a dreamlike state mm. and don't even realize they're reading words off the page. They're just experiencing the story. And that's involves you sort of getting out of the way. Like, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't get flattered if you tell me I wrote a beautiful sentence. Mm. I'm more excited when you tell me you couldn't put the story down. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's not to say that those two things are, are mutually exclusive. It's just that I know when I'm going into the work, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time trying to find a good metaphor. I'm just going to make sure I'm using precise nouns and verbs and hope that that gets you through the story with very little interruption. Yeah. And how did you like how did you know when you were finding your voice? Were you starting to get feedback that like resonated with how you wanted to be seen or? Sure. I mean, I started to get a lot of feedback early about how um, the word I use now, I'm not sure this is the word that was thrown out back then, but it's how I think about it now. It's like my stories tend to be propulsive. Like mm -hmm. they move. Um, it, it, I don't, I don't think I waste a lot of time in any particular mode, whether that's exposition, dialogue, action, I, I try to move between those things and modulate it in a way that pushes you forward until you finish the story. Mm -hmm. And when I started to get that, and it seemed like it worked because I was getting good feedback in my short fiction. If I was in anthologies, the thing that stood out to me is if the anthology was reviewed, if the reviewer keyed on my story mm -hmm. specifically. Mm -hmm. So like things like that sort of clued me in that something's working right here. Let's see how we can continue. Yeah. And propulsive is an interesting verb. Do you spend a lot of time like looking up verbs to find the most active verb or? I don't because I also, I, I try to preach against the thing where you go like, go to the, the, the source and try yeah. to find the most. I, I don't necessarily like that either. But mm. what I do is in revision, I'll just recognize if I'm being a little bit too simple. Mm. or i mean a lot of i say this all the time a lot of the good stuff comes in the third and fourth draft okay uh, and the first draft is always a mess even been doing this for what 32 years now um the first draft's always a mess all that stuff comes all that precision all that really intentional thought comes in subsequent drafts for me mm. if i'm a an aspiring writer listening to this you know a, conversation and again hearing that you know it's the third and fourth draft where the good stuff comes you know that can be an intimidating thing because you've probably put a lot of time into a book by that point like what does your writing process look like now and what are your expectations along the way sure now my writing process because i'm full-time um i would say it's a little more I'm careful using this word. It's a little more leisurely in the sense of I treat it like a regular work day. Mm. Uh, I'm probably, you know, I, I get up in the morning, eat breakfast, see my wife off, off to work, and I'm probably in the in front of the computer by like 8.30 or so. Mm. And I try to work pretty steadily until noon. I'll break for lunch after that. If I haven't hit a certain workout goal for that day, I'll keep going. Mm -hmm. If I have, I may work, I may switch projects or I may focus on 
administrative stuff because there's a lot of that these days. Yeah. So the process is very much uh, I'm getting up and going to work five days a week. Sometimes it's actually seven days, depending on the need. But if you're doing that consistently, the amount of work just piles up. Um, if you're doing three pages a day, that's a novel in like three months. And yeah. so if you can do that all year, you, you can write four novels. Yeah. So how long, like, how long do you spend in a novel these days, like across the entire process? Oh, so if I, I'm, I won't bring up, I'll bring up first draft first. Let me start there. Yeah. First draft, I can probably get done two and a half to three months if I'm really on. Okay. Um, things that have interrupted that in the past years have been a lot of travel because I speak in schools. I go to conferences, um, obviously because of the circumstances of this year, that has not been the case. So it's been a little more consistent in two and a half months. I'm done with the first draft of a project. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about all the subsequent drafts and edits, yeah. I would say it's, it's not unusual to spend a total of like 18 months on a project before it's done to the point that it's going to be printed and in stores. Mm-hmm. And, but, but that's not like every day you're working on it because I, I'm now working on several projects and it's been that way for the last few years. So it doesn't feel like I've just spent a solid year and a half on this one thing. It's more like three years pass and all of a sudden three things are coming up. Right. You probably have back and forth rounds of back and forth. Exactly. With your editor. Exactly. At what point do you hand it off to the editor? Is it after a certain draft? I usually will turn it in after second draft and I might share that with some friends who mm-hmm. are also reading at the same time as the editor. Um, just because I don't have the time to let it linger to the point where I'm totally comfortable. I'm like, okay, this is the absolute best I can do on my own. So yeah. when I'm turning that second draft in, I know it's still problematic. And that's uncomfortable for me in the sense like I hate, no one likes to be criticized, right? Like it is always stings when that, when that piece of criticism comes back where you know you didn't do your best work. Yeah. But time doesn't allow me to sit on it until I'm comfortable because it's never going to be perfect. Mm. Are you aware of like where you think it still needs work and, and what you're going to hear back when you submit so, that? Sometimes. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, I know this section's weak. I know this is weak. And then, but a lot of times I'm surprised. Sometimes mm-hmm. something will come back that I didn't think of. And that's the beauty of having editors that you like and trust and also having friends who can read to the level you need them to and give you honest feedback because you don't see your blind spots. Yeah. Yeah. And when you get the, when you get that email back with, with the revisions, right? Do you, do you jump right on that? <laughs> like a present? No, no I don't. Feeling no, a little I, dread no, or? No, I don't. Once I get uh edit letter back, I'll usually sit on it for a day or two before I read it. And, I, and, and that day or two is me getting my head together to be like, okay, you're going to be told you did a bunch of stuff wrong. You know, you're sensitive about that, mm. but the, you know, this is part of your job. You've done it many times before. And so I typically will take a day or two, like, especially if it comes on a Friday, mm-hmm. I won't read it until Monday. I want to enjoy my weekend. I don't want to obsess about it, you know? And, and so I take time before I just jump right on it. And mm-hmm. I, I, I work at a speed where that shouldn't hinder me too much because typically I'll get these letters and the editor would be like, can you have this back in like a month? Or can you have it back in six weeks? And so taking a couple of days off isn't going to hurt me. Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> it makes sense to screw your head on, right? I, mm -hmm. I I imagine you you probably had some point where you just went and opened it and maybe weren't ready. I'm just projecting my own yeah. experiences here. You know? <laughs> know, that, that, that happened early on, and I learned my lesson. It's like certain things I know better than yeah. to do because I know how I know how I'm going to take it. Like I know I'm going to feel hurt. Yeah. Even though I know there's no way for me to, there's never, I would feel nervous if I turn in a draft and the editor came back and said, you know what, this is perfect. You don't have to do anything else. Then that would upset me too. Mm. So <laughs> I, I recognize that that's just a part of my personality where I'm going to feel a little bit beat up when I read the stuff that I didn't get right. Yeah. And I also know that after a day or two of sulking, I'll be fine to fix it. Yeah. So is there a balance between like, oh, holding which ideas you hold precious or you know maybe hold on to or defend versus the types of feedback you'll take no i don't think there's any consistency in what i'll take and what i'll i'll push back against um i think it's project to project mm -hmm. and and sometimes it's a matter of like the editor saw something there that i just i, I just honestly disagree with um a lot of times i say most of the time the editor's right yeah but there are times when it's a matter of voice. Um, mm -hmm. It's a matter of region. I write, I tend to write characters who are in Virginia. So yeah. like there have been many times when dealing with my New York editor where they're like, I don't think it should sound like this. I'm like, no, this is, this is how we say it here. Right. And I need it to stay that way. And that's fine. I, I found typically editors are okay with you keeping most things. If you're willing to make other bigger changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They just want to know you're easy to work with and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in it together. Yeah. I can't I couldn't imagine and I've heard editors tell me stories like they've dealt with writers who'll turn something in and they're like, I'm not changing anything. Mm. I I couldn't do that because I would trust my editor to say, Hey, if this isn't working, you probably should change it. I don't I don't have the confidence that I can write flawless prose without help like that, you know? Yeah. So you, when you like started getting published, did you have some misconceptions about how that would work? And I ask, I guess I ask because I know a lot of people who, you know, I've known growing up and being in the kind of want to be creative circles, that that was a common conversation point. Like people are going to try to change my story. I'm not going to do that. I'll never get published because I'm not going to change word, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't have those misconceptions. I sort of figured, like I always had this understanding of if an editor is going to pay me, hmm. they may have some request. And maybe that comes from my, I started working when I was 15 years old um, mm -hmm. and pretty much haven't had a job consistently. I'm 41 now. Hmm. And I'm used to, if you're paying me, you may ask me to do stuff I don't always want to do. Mm-hmm. So like, it, I didn't think that was going to change here. The, the thing that I was, the hill that I would die on is if I write a black character, it's got to stay black. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've never, I've never run into a situation where someone's trying to make me change that. But I knew that coming in for the, for the reasons of me growing up and not seeing as many characters as I wanted to see look like me. Hmm. And so my reasoning was if I'm going to ever be in this business, I need to be able to create the sort of characters I want to create. Yeah. It doesn't mean I won't edit story. I won't edit plot. I've rewritten entire books. My third novel, Overturn, I wrote in third person 
in the initial draft. And the editor came back and said, look, you don't have to do it because I know it's going to sound like a whole lot of work, but would you consider rewriting this in first person? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a big change. That's that's, that's, that's a page one rewrite. I mean, I mean, sure. You know, the content, but that's a page one rewrite, but I couldn't get over the fact that she wouldn't have asked me if I'd done a good job in the third person. Mm. Mm. So all that to say, I've never had the misconception that I would just write something and never change it. Um, I, I understand that once you sign the publishing agreement, you're in business with these people and they're going to have some, some requests that they pay for. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you find that that's like in service to making it a better story and sticking to the vision or sometimes, I mean, and, and cause I mean, I have been in positions where the editorial notes wouldn't have made the story better. And I've pushed back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I stand by that decision. I think the result that we got, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically about my young adult coming of age novel, Not So Pure and Simple, which came out in January of this year. Yeah. So that's that's a story about black kids in a southern church in Virginia. Hmm. And the notes I was getting back were coming from editors who were raised in Catholic churches. Hmm. And so there was a lot of stuff about why, you know, we changed this. And I'm like, no this is something I'm not going to change because this isn't how it is for us. It does. Yeah. It's not going to affect the overall story. And in fact, if I did it your way, it's going to mess up part of the story. Yeah. And so sometimes the editorial changes are in service to the story. I would say even most times, but you have to be able to recognize when they're not. And also me having been in this business for so many years, I probably feel a little more confident saying no to things mm-hmm. than maybe a new writer would. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense. I was, you, I was going to ask about that and you, you addressed it. And so it sounds like you kind of knew going into this early on that there were certain things about if you're going to write that are important to you, like maybe you had a sense of some of what your North star is. Did you have a vision oh, of who, a vision? Can you talk about what your vision of who you wanted to be well, as an author? Well, growing up, I, I really wanted to be Stephen King mm. without knowing much about the business. And in my early 20s, I tried to write scary stories. Mm. I think I did okay. I, some of them sold. Um, some of them got some uh, critical acclaim. But I don't think I ever nailed the scary in long form. Like, I was never – I don't think I was ever going to write, like, an It mm. or a The Shiny. You know what I mean? Yep. But ultimately, I think it was a good thing I got away from that because I discovered early on that in that genre, and maybe in a lot of genre fiction, it wasn't as friendly to black people as mm. I thought it was going to be. And I say that because my first, like, big to me, big deal story sale was in an anthology called Dark Dreams, which was edited by an author named Brandon Massey, who was yeah. getting a lot of good press back in the early 2000s. Yeah. And so he pulled together a bunch of black writers and published the first anthology of all black horror stories. And I was 24 at the time the book published. And in my naivete, I thought people would be super excited about this. Yeah. I'm like, this is a new thing. It hasn't been done before. And there were a lot of people who were supportive, but I also, I read the comments, right? And it was a lot of the, this is racist against white people. Um, mm. These stories, these stories are only in this anthology because they couldn't make it anywhere else. 
Um, a lot of ta- a lot of a lot of touting of um, some of the more notable and problematic figures in horror, like Lovecraft. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And it be- it became apparent to me early on that it was going to be a struggle to succeed in publishing, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be an extra struggle for me to succeed in this genre. Mm-hmm. Perhaps I should look elsewhere. And I just started, you know, I widened my reading. I ended up hearing about this term that I'd never heard before called YA. Uh, when I was growing up, that no one used that term. And like, it, it started to pop up a lot. And I'm like, what is this young adult stuff? And I started to read some of the authors, um, particularly Neil Shusterman. Yeah. He, he um, had a book called Unwind that blew me away and made me want to consider writing for that age group. Mm. And I slowly shifted to writing young adult and the first novel I sold was a young adult mystery novel called fake ID. Yeah. So how long had you been writing by the time you sold fake ID? I sold fake ID when I was 31 years old mm-hmm. and I've been writing since I was like eight. Mm. So, uh, was that 20, yeah. <laughs> 23 years? Um, yeah. I think I'm doing the math, right? Forgive me if I'm not, but I've yeah. been, I mean, but like, I, truthfully, I'd only been serious, like trying to pursue it professionally since I was 21. So it's about yeah. the 10 year gap. Yeah. Yeah. So 10 years from the time you sold that first story. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So overnight success debut novel was <laughs> about in line with that seven to 10 years. That, yeah. That we had. It yeah. tends to be a consistent marker. If you've been doing it for a decade and, and improving, you tend to hear people have that breakthrough. Yeah. So when you wrote fake ID, like, did you sell, did you have a draft before you sold it or did you sell a premise? No, I had a draft before I sold it, but it was tough to sell. So I'd finished the draft of fake ID. We took on submission in 2010 i'd written the novel in 20 in 2009 but mm. it took um took a few months to get an agent and then mm. once i had my agent she suggested some changes so it was about september 2010 before we took it out to all the major publishers mm-hmm. and every publishing house in new york rejected it and mm. the the this is this is eye-opening for me too in the same way that my experience in the horror genre was eye-opening mm. the rejections that came back all complimented the premise, the writing, but more often than not, we got a note along the lines of, we've already got a writer who does this. Hmm. And here's the thing about it. They didn't have a writer that did what I did. They just had a black writer. Mm. And this was in the time when it, when publishers were really on some, you know, we have a black, <laughs> we, 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 we yeah. checked that box. So there's yeah. no room for you here. And uh. that was disheartening in a sense, but this was also the time when people were really heavy or getting really heavy in the self-publishing. Yes. And I'd had some stuff from my horror days that I felt would fit the self-pub model. And so I decided to publish a collection of short stories hmm. and a novella around that time. And they were doing well. I was making money on Amazon, um, getting a little attention, got invited to some writing conferences. And so out of respect for my agent, I let her keep submitting fake ID. But in mm. my mind, I sort of been like, you know what? This whole industry's trash, um, and I'm going to find a way to get to the readers, regardless of the gatekeepers trying to keep me out. Yeah. So and, you you were willing to fail. You had a 
you mm -hmm. you felt a little bit more in control potentially yeah yeah uh, i was i was just like i'm not gonna let some stranger in new york determine my fate and yeah. just so happened through that process of sort of forgetting about fake id and moving on mm. um nine months later and it's interesting that it's nine months you know the, the same gestation period of a child nine yeah. months later we got an offer from harper collins for fake id yeah wow have you ever heard the phrase write submit forget yeah yeah, yeah. i i, I I tried to implement that mindset very early on. And anytime I submitted something, I was already working on the next project. So yeah. I, I found that softened the blow of rejection letters. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to have a chip on the shoulder sometimes, mm -hmm, <laughs> at least mm -hmm. for self, self-preservation. Agreed. Yeah. And so you, you've, you had, so talk about like, first of all, why you wrote fake id like what was the premise you started with and why did you decide i imagine you were generating a lot of ideas why did you decide this was the one to write well so i'll, I'll say what fake id is about and then i'll backtrack to how i got there so yeah. fake id is about a kid named nick pearson who moves to his fourth town in four years because his family's in the witness protection program and when he moves to this town, the only friend he makes is murdered under mysterious circumstances. And as he starts to use the street smarts he's learned from his previous lives, he realizes that his father may be involved in the murder. Mm. Um, the, and so that came from me starting to enjoy mystery novels more mm -hmm. and just wanting to take a crack at it myself. And I tried to write this adult mystery novel about a woman in witness protection who was the daughter of a mob boss and she was on the and she was in the program because she was testifying against her own family and honestly it just felt flat um i worked on it for a couple of months i just really it didn't feel like there was any there there yeah and at the same time i was still reading young adult books and starting to kind of like just be really amazed at the level of creativity in some of those books i was reading i think i'd read this book by um, Peter Abraham's called Reality Check, which was just a straight up mystery. Mm. And I said, well, I like, what if just, you know, trying to new creative stuff. What if I tried this premise with a teen boy and ended up knocking out a draft in a relatively short amount of time? I felt like there was something there mm. and not knowing what would come of it, cleaned it up like I normally do, got prepared to send it out. Um, the big difference at this point I think was me deciding to really take my time on the query process. Mm. And, and what I mean is prior to that, I probably would have fired off 50 query letters at once. Right. Just, just, go, just, just to go for yeah, the result as soon yeah, as possible. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so the difference this time was this is 2009. I've got a clean draft. We're going into the, to December. And so I know enough about the industry to know December is the month pretty much everyone knocks off. No one's doing anything. Yeah. And so I reason there's no reason to rush. I could take the whole month to work on nothing but my query letter. Mm. And that's exactly what I did. I did like 14 drafts. Mm. And at the same time, I was like laser focused on researching agents. And so I even had divided them into categories. Like I say, it's like an A, B, C list. So A is dream agents. B is they seem interesting. I think we work well together. And then C was like new agents who were really hungry. You could get that issue of Writer's Digest. They'd be listed in there as just starting out their careers. And so I made a list of these three columns and maybe had like 10, 20 agents in each column. And the, the deliberate thing I did was, okay, 
I'm only going to query three from column A, three from column B, mm-hmm. four from column C. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do 10. And I would know immediately if I was on to something or if there was something wrong with my approach. Because yeah. in that way, I haven't burnt through the entire list. I have time to adjust. And yeah. so on January 3rd of 2010, I sent out 10 query letters. By the end of the day, I already had one request for a full manuscript, which was totally different than what happened before. Every other time I've done this, has been 100% rejection. Mm. By the end of the month, seven of the 10 had asked to read the manuscript. Mm. So I knew my letter was solid. Mm. Now, of those 10, I mean, of those seven, they all ended up rejecting me for different reasons. And so I knew the letter was solid, but there's something wrong in the manuscript. But one of the agents gave me like some really good feedback. I like, okay, I took three weeks, did another draft, fixing a bunch of things I thought were problematic. And I repeated my process with a new batch of agents. And I ended up almost immediately getting offers of representation. Mm. That's great. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like in that time span of the intervening years, you, you, whether it was the hard way or not, you learned patience. And, and, and that seems like a, a professional asset for you. Yeah, I mean, it, w- this whole business I've learned is about doing the work on the front end because a, a query letter isn't much different than a book. Once you put it out there, you don't get a second chance to put it out there. Mm-hmm. You may have chances for different people to see it, mm-hmm. but you'll never get back that initial person who saw it. So like if your letter's sloppy and you send it to that agent, you've burnt that bridge. If yeah. your book is sloppy and you let it get put on the bookshelf and the reviewers eat you alive and the readers think you're not good, you you may never get them back. Mm. Yeah. And when you're when you ended up with an agent like what was it about that agent that worked for you and what did they tell you that why were they excited? So my agent is Jamie Weiss Chilton of the Andrea Brown agency. Um, she's been my agent for 10 years and the thing that really sold me on Jamie was her energy. She seemed really positive. Um, she seemed confident that she could sell my work and she was really adamant about it not just being this one book she was like when i sign clients i'm trying to help them build careers and all that stuff seemed appealing and i had choices um because Mm -hmm. she wasn't the only one that offered and you know i I did the whole thing where um i I talked to everybody asked them questions like i would in a job interview because i mean essentially they're that's what it is right you're trying to fill each other out to see if you're going to work well together yeah. And of everyone who offered, Jamie was the standout. Um, more than anything, that she felt like I had a future in the business, and I believed her when she said it. Mm. That's got to be literally, a That's got to be a good feeling. It is. I mean, also yeah. too, because there was—I I will say there's another agent, which I don't—I don't know if they're even still in the business. But one agent that offered, I was in grad school at the time, working on a technical writing degree because I was a technical writer for Hewlett Packard. Hmm. And but the thing is, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to publish books. And so when I started to get these offers of representation, I'm looking for someone who could sell the book, get me closer to being a full time writer. And I, I had one agent who was like, well, I mean, if I were you, I would still stay in school and focus on that. And so immediately I'm like, you seem nice, but I'm not going to work with you because mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you're, you're already selling yourself short and selling me short. Yeah. So, yeah, Jamie, Jamie was the one and we've been a good team for 10 years. Yeah. So that's kind of the story of, of fake ID, right? And 
then you got published with Harper Collins. And what happens when you get on that train and that first book comes out and you start getting press and reviews and you probably have a whole different sort of work to do at that point? You do. You do. And I would say, like, I don't think I had a typical first book experience because the editor that acquired Fake ID ended up leaving HarperCollins like six months before Fake ID published. So <laughs> I, I, I was what you would call an orphaned author. Yeah. When your editor leaves and you it's so, yes, it's a different level of work. I would say to anybody who's in this business, you need to be prepared to wear several hats. You need to learn how to be a marketer. You need to learn how to be a public speaker. You better get comfortable getting on TV, um, doing podcasts like your podcast. Mm. And I, I think part of the allure of writing when I was young was that it was a solitary activity. Mm. I would probably be classified as an introvert. Mm-hmm. But unless you're, I don't even know how it is for like the superstar like even if you're talking about like King and John Grisham and, and, and the biggest authors in the world, I don't know that they can always necessarily just sit back and let the publisher do the work for them. Stephen King still does 10 cities a year, I think, when he publishes a book. Yeah. You have to be able to sell your book yourself because if you're not one of those stars, the truth is the publisher isn't going to do that much for you. And this is a business where they'll look at your sales. And that will determine what your next deal is. If you even get one, what sort of marketing budget they will put forth. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just, it's bizarre in the sense of you'll be in positions where the publisher won't help, but they'll also blame you if there aren't good results. Mm. So, you know, you don't have to answer this, but like what, what, do good results look like in, in terms of trad publishing, in terms of a first novel? Like, what I are think, they expecting to for you to be able to have a shot at another novel? This is the truth. I honestly don't know what the publisher expects, but what I understand, this is my understanding. Yeah. They have crunched the numbers in a way that they know how they're going to make money. So for example, I mean, I'll be completely transparent. My first yeah. book advance for fake ID was thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. Now that sound now obviously you think about it, if I got a check for thirty thousand dollars in front of me, that's a lot of money for right now. But what it was, it's split in half. Sometimes depending on your deal, it could be split in thirds or fourths. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get it you know, it's spread out over like three or four years. Yeah. You gotta pay your agent, you gotta pay taxes. So that's not a ton of money. Yeah. For me, you know, but in terms of the publishing math, they figured out that's an amount they can pay you. Um, they can still print the book, do whatever it is it costs to get it out there. And they know that they can probably sell enough copies so they get their money back. Yeah. Now, the, the the thing that makes it especially successful is if the book sells so much that it pays them back for that advance they paid you, which is called earning out. Mm-hmm. And that means that from that point on, whenever that book sells, you're going to get a cut of that money sent to you a couple times a year. Yep. So to me, earning out is a good marker of success. Mm-hmm. There's a saying in this business that if you earn out your advance, your advance wasn't big enough. I don't, I don't know about that. I, I like being able to earn out my advance, continue to make money, and the publishers feel comfortable moving forward with me on future deals. And my yeah. deals have gotten significantly bigger over time. Yeah. Um, so that's, to me, that's the success. You can earn out and you're able to get your next contract. Now, of course, 
big public successes like making the bestsellers list, winning the big awards, that's icing on the cake. But I'm also looking at if I can still do this 15 years from now, I've been doing pretty good. Yeah. So you just used the S word, <laughs> which is success. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, and, and you, you know, you kind of. You said S word. I'm like, did I say shit? Yeah. <laughs> no, the other S word, the longer S word. I got you. I got you. Yeah. And so you mentioned awards and the deals and it sound. What is success for you? What, what, what matters about all this? To me, success is the life I'm living right now. I came into this. I was a corporate guy before this. I told you I worked for Hewlett Packard. Yeah. I worked for a couple of other companies. My whole thing was if I could get into writing and make what I make in corporate world, I'd rather do that because I always hated my time in, in, in a cubicle. Yeah. Um, I've been doing that handily. I'm yeah. able to write full time, pay my bills. And, 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 and the truth is I'm not just scraping by. I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. And that's always what I wanted. Um, I think this is actually in on writing. I think Stephen King says the best validation is a paycheck or something along those lines. Yeah. And that I can make a living making up stories. I recognize that's a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. I, it's not to say that I wouldn't want, I, I would love to make the New York Times bestseller list one day. Um, I've had the the privilege of winning some cool awards, particularly in the state of Virginia. Mm -hmm. I, I would never turn down that sort of recognition. I'd be grateful to any committee that saw something in my work. But I mean, like I said, to me, being able to make a living doing this is the best reward. Yeah. Do you feel like, like you mentioned earlier that, you know, you'd like enough time to try everything. Do you feel like for you to be successful in the long term, that success means always writing books? in publishing books or is there room to to experiment with how you're making that lifestyle happen oh i think there's definitely room to experiment um certainly i will continue to write books but um i would love to take try my hand at screenwriting um i i can almost guarantee you i'm going to write a graphic novel soon Mm. Um, I, I wish I could get, in, I wish I could get yeah. into more detail about that. I just can't, I'm not, a, but I, I, I would say barring any sort of really wild circumstances, yeah. I can pretty much say I'll be writing graphic novels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would like to write picture books for younger, young, young, young kids, you know? Um, yeah, I want to do a bunch of stuff. I, I'm not limiting myself to just books. Yeah. So you're probably pretty savvy in a way that myself and others aren't in terms of like maybe what the right medium is for different types of stories. Like I feel like I'm not a huge graphic novel reader, but I feel like the stories are more relevant in mm -hmm. comics and graphic novels right now than a lot of books that I see. Mm -hmm. And is that something you notice? Well, you have to understand my audience is mainly children. So that's teen to younger. Yeah. And so I would say definitely is more relevant because there's been a lot of focus on producing graphic novels that appeal to them. And they tell me that their teachers tell me they just love the mix of the art and the words. Mm. And so for my audience, it's definitely, I'm not gonna say it's necessarily more relevant because there's certainly extremely relevant prose out yeah. right now. Yeah. But there's you're not going to go into a school and find that that audience is 
resistant to graphic novels. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're cool now, right? Yeah. 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 But I mean, relevant also just like in terms of what's reaching people, not necessarily what's being written. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's a combination of things that have happened over the last couple of decades. The fact that we rely on so much various media. Mm -hmm. I think anytime you have on the page a mix of media, whether that's art and words um, with 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 vibrant colors, um, that feels more like when you're playing video games and when you're watching TV and when you're watching YouTube and when you're watching TikTok. I mean, yeah. I think it all kind of links in, in, in ways that appeal to modern audiences. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I think that's what's going on. Yeah. It, pivoting slightly, you know, like one thing that jumps out at me with your work is like, especially with the not so pure and simple is like maybe subtext your it seems like your story has subtext with a lot of gravity and maybe relevant social relevance like cultural mm-hmm. relevance like mm-hmm. you know some of those elephants in the room that we talked about more that are maybe sure. still entrenched like sure. do, do you feel like writing for like children and teenagers you have a chance to maybe do some good in the world well i do particularly with that book um, I've made no secret that the book is meant to bring up topics of toxic, toxic masculinity, misogyny, homophobia. Um, I try not to be heavy handed. I always say is I use humor mm-hmm. because using humor on these topics is like putting medicine in ice cream. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, it, as much as that book's meant to make you laugh and I hope you're entertained, I had the hope that this year would be a year where I would be in schools talking to these kids about how boys are raised in particular. Yeah. Now the circumstances of this year have prevented that, but it's not to say those conversations aren't still happening. Um, I've done many zoom events. I get emails from time to time. I'm glad to know that people are picking up the book and picking up on some of what you just described, because I did write the book in hopes of starting conversations that maybe assist in dismantling some of the more toxic traits of masculinity that have gotten passed on over the decades yeah and how 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 do you feel harper collins felt as far as was there support with the current staff to to do something that was a little you know maybe edgy i know that there's you know i've talked to people like in hollywood sometimes where anything that's maybe a little too on the nose gets a little quashed or subdued no, I, Harper was really into it, um, probably more so than my mystery novels. Um, I think I've I published with several publishers now. And I think, like, for instance, my Scholastic novels, Spin mm. and Overturned. Scholastic seems to be the publisher that really likes my mystery thriller work. While mm-hmm. Harper, I think, was really on board with the idea of a coming-of-age novel that dealt with some of these relevant topics. Mm. So they were supportive. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what are you working on now? Well, I, I write a middle grade fantasy series that's um, uh, collectively called The Legendary Austin Boys of Logan County. Mm-hmm. Um, the books are The Last Last Day of Summer and The Last Mirror on the Left. And I just finished the third book in that series, The Last Chance for Logan County, which will be out next year. Mm-hmm. So what I'm working on now is a spinoff for that series starring two of the supporting characters 
that have popped up in all the books and tend to be fan favorites. Um, there are a pair of twin girls named Wiki and Lean. They're known mm-hmm. as the Epic Ellisons, and they're going to get their own series. Um, the, the, the working title, actually, I don't think I can say the working title. Let's just say it's, it's in the work. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Like, it's so much stuff I'm not allowed to say. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, working on, I'm working on two other projects that I can't talk about yet. Right. But I try to give a broad hint. One yeah, is another yeah. young adult novel, yeah. and I would say it's it's I would call it a pre dystopia. So mm-hmm. it's it's dealing with the time period between our world as we know it and what could potentially be a dystopian world. Yeah, and so then the other project on the precipice sorry, of sounds like so maybe on the precipice of choice while the choice still matters. Yes, yes, yeah. and the other project is a graphic novel project. I can't right. say much more than that. Well, I can't say I'm surprised because. You know, one, there's the market, but like some of these book covers, like really cool art and they hint at kind of graphic novel, like they could be adapted mm-hmm. that way. Like I can see the appeal. Do you have like, do you, are you into like illustrators and following graphic novel illustrators? Do you have a sense of who you'd like to work with? I, I don't. And it's not that. I, I want to follow them more. But the first time I ever worked with an illustrator was Dapo Adiala, who does the illustrations for the middle grade series. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've seen his work. He's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, but he was my entry point into getting to know illustrators. And so there are a few more I know because I converse with him and he recommends I look at people's work, but I'm not as familiar with that world. So if it came down to like the graphic novel, yeah. Whatever that particular publisher suggested, I'd probably go with. Like, I, right. I hope they would give me some input, but it's not like I, I would be like, no, I need it to be so and so. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I mean, like, you're comfortable where your taste is and the things mm. you consume. And right. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, so cert- how- I mean, I'll say this: as, yeah. as a growing up a comic book fan, there are yeah. certainly illustrators i remember growing up that i think are fantastic that i know i probably have absolutely no chance of ever working with like for instance todd mcfarlane or um jim lee you know like those superstar illustrators i recognize but i don't know that world in depth yeah 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 so how do you how do you do you feel like the market shifting to be more supportive and not just like have you know the token person of color writing for them or is it kind of a mixed bag right now i think there have been significant improvements particularly in the last 10 years or so um i think you can look at a bestseller list from 2010 compared to a bestseller list now and just immediately see that you've got a more diverse crop of authors breaking out successfully than you would have a decade ago Hmm. i think the places particularly in my part of the industry which caters to children I think the places where we still need a lot of work is in-house at the publishers, like mm. getting more um, a, a larger variety of decision makers on board. Yeah. So they're not just, you know, they're not falling into the trap of thinking because because police brutality is a big topic. Um, we're going to publish nine police brutality books and ignore everything else about black people. Yeah. Like, I think yeah. I think yeah. I think we risk that sort of thing. Yeah. Additionally. I think changes, and this would be the most difficult, changes need to happen in how literature curriculums are handled in schools. 
And that's the harder thing to change because people are very much traditionalist and you get so much pushback if a book has any sort of subject matter that even a single parent would find controversial. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and, it's, and it tends to be when you find books with more diverse creators and characters mm-hmm. that deal with social topics, there's going to be parents who don't want their kids to read that. And, and the frustrating thing is you get the sense the parent probably didn't read the classic literature that's on the reading list either because of yeah. some some of that stuff's there too but it's just yeah. the idea like you're not you know there's so much in the media about you're not going to indoctrinate my kid with these yes. left-leaning politics yeah yeah when in reality we're just trying to humanize right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everybody and normalize our experiences it's mm-hmm. so i you know I ask because for for listeners who are on the aspiring author category and maybe you know have the additional challenge of not appearing white, right? Like is there anything you like how do you look for the right opportunities how, or at least how do you filter out like <laughs> like don't waste your time with this put your energy and your heart here. Like do you have any sense? Well, I mean you have to you have to go into it understanding this. You're gonna you're gonna deal with an industry that has existed for a century yeah. without having to consider you at all. Understanding that you know that there are people out here fighting for more opportunities for you. Hmm. The key is to find the people in the industry who see your value. And that's what was the difference for me. I had to find Jamie. I had to find my first editor, Phoebe. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had to find subsequent editors who got what I did. I mean, and that meant going through 30 people who said no. So I think you just have to prepare yourself for most people aren't going to be right for you. The mission is to filter them out by going through the process and the steps that seem hard until you reach that person that says yes. Yeah. Do you find that, early on it's going to be more important to have a perfect story or to be um to interface well as a human being with others when you're trying to network for those opportunities i think i certainly focus on story you want to try to get your writing to a strong place but i don't think you have to be perfect or even great to break in in terms of the writing i think it is important to be a good human and i think it's important to not come off as a as someone who's like trying to form relationships simply to propel your own agenda. Mm. And I'll give you an example. When I was first trying to figure out how to get a footing in this industry, I'm talking about in the early short story days, that three year stretch when I couldn't sell anything after the first short story sale. This was, the internet was fairly new. The idea of authors having websites were still fairly new. So this idea that there would be an author you can go to their website and their email address would be right there. You could actually yeah. reach out to these people. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to do that. But this is the thing I was careful about. Like I knew to do, I knew this even as an, in my early twenties, I knew not to go to them asking for favors. Yeah. Instead, what would happen is I would only look at the sites of writers. I read like mm-hmm. writers. I admired. I knew mm-hmm. their work well. And I would take notes when I read their books and I would have questions like, how did you decide to make this plot decision when you were developing this? Those are the questions I would write to them and ask. They were essentially craft questions. Mm -hmm. 
not many people wrote me back, but one person who did write me back was Brandon Massey, who would be the mm -hmm. one who would buy my, my next short story when he mm -hmm. put that anthology together. And the thing he told me in, in the email, he wrote me back almost immediately. He was like, so many people write me asking me how to get published. Hook me up with your agent. Can I meet, can you, can you read my story? He was like, you're one of the first people who wrote me and actually asked me questions about my book. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and that opened up, a, we, we exchanged emails for a long time before he told me he was putting an anthology together. But like, he's like me in a sense, like, I love it when someone writes me and asks me questions about my book. It doesn't happen as often as you think, even though I get a ton of email. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. I get a lot of reader emails mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, it, I think we have these preconceived notions and, and sounds like you got over this barrier of, about contacting people early on and that benefited you. Mm -hmm. um, so I know we're running up against time. I wanted to ask about, are you still involved with uh, We Need Diverse Books? Not actively. I stepped down in 2018 just due to timing. Um, yeah. I've been with the organization about four and a half years, and I was coming up on a year when I was going to publish like three books. And yeah. I just couldn't maintain the commitment to We Need Diverse Books and handle my publishing stuff. Yeah, I know, but, um, be, I'm still I know being an editor yeah. would be a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm still I'm still friends with everybody, though. I, yeah. I was able to help hire an executive director before I left. So um, I know the organization is still doing well, and I'm happy they're doing well without me because the goal was always to grow it to a point it could sustain itself. Great. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I just mentioned it as a tie-in to, you know, looking, you know, it may, sometimes it's hard when you're early on to just even figure out where to look, right? And it mm -hmm. may require patience and I think people may not understand their own value. And, you know, you mentioned being, you know, careful not being transactive, right. Or transactional mm -hmm. in your emails. And I think people struggle to find early on what value they would contribute to somebody. Right. Mm -hmm. In that mm -hmm. exchange. Right. And, and so may go with that approach of, Hey, do something for me because I don't know what I could do for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, and, and, and to be clear, I, I never get the impression that people who reach out and want to favor mean harm. Yeah. But it becomes a situation of, and, and here's the truth. Like when people, when people have written me and asked me stuff like, Hey, how do you get published? Can you, who's your agent? Can you introduce me? Can you read? I don't like scold them or anything. I yeah. just be like, hey, you know, I just, I, I honestly, like, really can't read your work due to time constraints, due to yeah. legal considerations. I can answer some questions if you need help that way. I can point you to some resources. Yeah. But it feels, um, it feels weird when you get the sense this person really doesn't know anything about you other than you have a name on a book cover. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know. I think because of the way marketing works, like a lot of people feel a lot of pressure on the first things they create that they should be great. The mm -hmm, first mm -hmm. things they're making. And if they don't get work, sell the first thing, like they're a failure and there's no point in continuing. And I think there's some of that energy, right? Yeah. I mean, you definitely, I think everyone feels like that clock is ticking, right? Yeah. And it's like, it's like the idea of like, I spent two years creating this thing. And if I don't get this off the ground, nothing else will ever work where I feel like I always had the mentality of, I spent six months writing this book. 
And if this doesn't go, that means my next book will be better for me having gone through this experience. Mm. So did you have to turn a corner to, to get to that point or? No, I mean, the truth is I never, I don't know if I was very confident early on, there was a path to a career. Yeah. But the, the, the big difference maker for me was I was already working full time. I think this is a key thing too. I haven't brought up. Like, I yeah. think it helps as long if you have something that supports you financially yeah. while you're trying to break into the arts. Yeah. Because that takes pressure off. Yeah. And I was in a situation, I had a full-time job, corporate guy doing well, doing well for a young guy, I should say. I was freshly married, so I had my wife's income too. So yeah. we were okay, but I didn't love getting up and going to work every day, but I still love making up stories. Yeah. And so my mind was, even if this doesn't go, if I don't break in, I'm still doing something I like. Um, no different than if I was getting up and playing a video game in the morning. I enjoy playing video games. It helps me chill out before I got to deal with the BS at work. Yeah. It just so happened I was able to improve to the level and find the right opportunity to segue into a career. Yeah. But if the go if the idea is I need to be immediately successful and make money, and I, I think you're more likely setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Because it doesn't leave any room for the bumps and bruises that come along. Yeah. And as we mentioned, right, your your process took ten years of doing it seriously yeah. to yeah. to get that you know thirty thousand dollar advance, right? And that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so for people who want to know more about you, how can they find you, Lamar? Um, my website is lamargiles.com. It's just my name. I'm at lrgiles on Twitter. Okay. I'm Lamar Giles on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. Great. Well, Lamar, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, yeah, this is great, Ethan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast.